I'm going to go try to find Robert on Twitter right now. If he's on. Oh, he's he's <laughs> not on Twitter. Twitter. You're, are you on Twitter? I'm on social media. I mean, Why are you not on Twitter, Robert? I don't, know. I don't have Instagram. I don't have Twitter. I mean, every, and then I like just recently deactivated my Facebook. So people are like, Makes how sense. am I going to find you? I should just do Twitter myself. I'm going to try Commit. to get one. I- Dr. Ethel Tungohan, an associate professor of politics at York University. Welcome to Academic Aunties. In today's episode, we are talking about the job market. We challenge the notion that academia is meritocratic. We highlight how fraught applying for academic jobs can be for many marginalized folks, especially those who are first gen, working class, racialized, and queer. We wonder whether typical job market advice, such as moving anywhere where there is a job and prioritizing top schools, so R1 schools for Americans, over other schools makes sense. And we also address ways to take back agency in a fundamentally messed up and inequitable structure. While there are plenty of places to get job market advice, such as what you put in your cover letter, etc., what we are trying to do here is to give voice to all of you who recognize how inequitable and dehumanizing the process can be. So hopefully, listening to this conversation is cathartic. Enjoy! Hello, hello. Uh, What a treat Uh, with us today. We've got Dr. Marianne Mendoza and Dr. Robert Diaz. I'm so thrilled to have both of you here. Uh, The first thing I'd like us to do is um, Professor Diaz or actually Tito Robert, because this is Academic Antis. You're our first Tito guest, right? Would you I can like be to a tita int- too? Though I'd like to be a tita. That's you can be a tita too. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree with tita. Um, do you want to kind of briefly introduce yourself, like where you are? Uh, yeah, I'm Robert Diaz. I'm an associate professor in the Women and Gender Studies Institute at the University of Toronto. Um, my work uh, broadly addresses questions of migration um, and mobility in the context of sexuality, um, gender, and uh, diaspora. Welcome. And we also have uh, Dr. Marianne Mendoza, Tita Marianne. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. So I'm Dr. Mendoza. My work as a political scientist is focused on looking at the way in which colonial education policies influence nationalist movements. That's awesome. Great. Uh, what I really wanted to uh, talk to both of you about is it is job market season everywhere uh, on Twitter, in in Zoom conversations with graduate students and also early career scholars. I find that a lot of people have anxiety about the inhumanity of the academic job search process. And so I thought, you know, why don't we tap into your collective expertise? Uh, and one question I think might be worthwhile to start with is what were some of your experiences navigating academia first as students then also now as professors that make it clear that this isn't necessarily a meritocratic system i think one of the things that i'll kind of start with bringing up is just the difference it makes when you have family members who understand what academia is For me, as a first-gen student, that was really difficult to explain to my parents. So when I was on the job market, I think it was difficult to explain how, even though I had done X, Y, and Z, right, If even if I have taught classes or had things published or was almost done, none of that guaranteed a job at the end of this process. 
there was a lot of explaining that had to take place in terms of describing for my family and my parents what our job market looks like. It's not like you log into Indeed or LinkedIn <laughs> and, and apply the same traditional way, but also just the way in which external forces like letters of recommendation mattered so much more, or at least we're told they matter so much more, um, or why a specific part of my application had to be tailored for each one, why I had to have so many components. I think a lot of that was difficult. And I think just the emotional labor of explaining that to family to kind of have to explain to your parents, yeah, I could do all these things and it might still not result in a job was, was something that I think for my peers who had family, who had been on the job market or who had family who were academics, not having to explain that I think was a really big difference. I think, you know, coming from multiple um, intersectional forms of like you know, being marginalized and entering a job market, you you understand the kind of multiple barriers that are in front of you. And so part of the process is identifying those barriers and also um, not even just identifying them, but like really, and sometimes even like embracing them as part of the process that um, actually, I you know, becomes part of your politics when you enter. So I was a dreamer in the US. And so I actually entered academia, not because I was, had a passion for research. I actually entered it because it was the only way for me to stay in the U.S. legally, right? Mm. So um, I, um, you know, I didn't have uh, paperwork um, when I was in university, and so then, um, or the status was questioned, right? In many ways, because I was not a resident, like a permanent resident, um, and so then I had to switch to a foreign student status because that was the only way I could stay in the U.S., even though my mother at that point was already a U.S. citizen, um, and so. There's like, so even in that story, right, there's multiple levels there. My mother was a cook in a convalescent hospital. She was not an academic at all. Mm -hmm. I was entering to a job market um, that I was entering for, but not even job market, but a career that I was entering for um, out of um, necessity. Uh, so I secured four tenure track jobs, right? So this is my fourth tenure track job, right? And in those four tenure track jobs, every single time you learn a new ritual, that was had, had to happen in every institution based on how prestigious they saw themselves. Even like, I remember the very first time I, I've, I'm not a wine drinker. Like nobody in my family is a wine drinker. Like mm -hmm. it's not, you know, and when you interview for a job, they usually like, you know, like the first thing they'll do is like in a, in a dinner, right? Because pre COVID, of course, they will offer you the wine glass, right? And you have to like kind of sip it and drink. It, it's a performance. It's a performance. Like you're supposed to know how to smell wine and what tastes is, is it good? And like, I don't know. So I had to learn the first time it happened to me, actually, in an interview, I was sort of like, what is going on? So then the second time it happened to me, I, I knew to say, oh, it's your choice. You, you can do first. And, you know, I, I defer. Right. So then it then becomes a kind of right a strategy for not even participating in that performance of uh, of cultural capital. Right. And that's a political choice I made from then on. Actually, every single interview from that one moment. Right. I said to myself, I'm never doing that. I think about the ways in which some of these barriers that Robert mentioned, like when you are a graduate student or um, a junior faculty navigating some of these barriers, whether they're economic or social or political, whatever they are, when you're going through them, they definitely feel like barriers. Mm. But then when you're doing your job market materials, especially if your committee or your letter writers are not from the same background, all of a sudden, these are barriers and obstacles that you're supposed to glowingly write about in your letters of like, mm. look at all that I've gone through and like somehow come out on the other side um, and, and, you know, worked hard, pulled myself up by the bootstraps, and therefore you should hire me. It warps kind of that whole thing where the whole time you're going through it, 
for, especially for some people who might not have supportive committee members or who just really have a lot of institutional things to overcome, all of a sudden your job market materials are supposed to write about that positively, about how it makes you a better scholar, whatever that means. Um, when in the moment, and probably even as you're writing your materials, it feels nothing like that. I think one thing you're pointing to, Marianne, that, you know, I kind of wanted to address a little bit, uh, and this is because I'm hearing this, and I'm really, really upset by this, uh, which is that I have some colleagues who are in the job market who are basically saying, oh, but you can't get a job now as a cishet white guy, right? Because everyone wants to get the diversity hire, right? And I think that's something that, well, bothers me because it's not like we are just diversity hires, right? Like it's not like we were hired in our jobs because our institutions wanted to check that box, right? You have to be, you have to be excellent. You have to meet and, you know, be above the bar in order to even be considered in the long list. And yet there's that perception that, oh, well, you know, cishet white guys, it's so hard to get jobs. And so I was wondering what your thoughts were, both of you on that, because I'm hearing that a lot. When I think about it historically and how disproportionately individuals who were getting PhDs and getting tenure track jobs were, says white men, um, no one at the time ever asked like, or ever said as plainly as, as some of these individuals do now, like it's no one, you know, it's so hard to get a job as a cis Asian woman. Or it's so hard to get a job as a queer black individual. Like just the, the flip side of that. And, but it's just frustrating. I think, like you said, to say the least to kind of hear that now. But you, you know, we never heard those things about the disproportionate um, number of individuals and in graduate programs who were not cis hat white men. And whenever that is brought up sparingly, there's always reasons I, you know, I would hear, um, admission committees say things like, oh, well, you know, brown students or black students don't apply as much to our programs. That's why. Um, rather than this question about retention, um, and, and kind of as Robert was talking, I was thinking about this as well in terms of sometimes this call to diversify in terms of hires, but then there's not that support when it comes to retention. And so the number of faculty of color or queer faculty who, when they do get the job, but don't get tenure, sometimes the narrative is they didn't do X, Y, Z. Absolutely. And I think what you're saying makes me think of two things. Like, first of all, let's reverse the question, right? Like, why are departments full of homogeneity hires, right? Um, so rather than, you know, kind of asking, um, why are you hiring these diversity hires? We'll just look at department makeups, right? And ask yourself, why have we, even today, um, you know, still conceive of the academy as being the bastion for cishet white guys, right? As seen in, you know, the chair. Um, but the second thing, there's also there's also all of these, I guess, like racialized, but also class-based um, hurdles that don't get factored in, right? So, you know, you mentioned, for instance, flyouts, Marianne, um, and conferences, right? And I find that the people who were able to form these networks were the ones who could afford $1,000, $2,000 to go to conferences and make make these connections. People who don't necessarily have to work, you know, 
real jobs in order to pay the bills. I think reimbursement culture is so frustrating, for sure, especially for graduate students in general, but graduate students from marginalized backgrounds who like that stipend or whatever it is that you're getting paid as a graduate student, if you're getting paid um, for your labor, is usually barely enough to cover cost of living. I see so many instances of graduate students on Twitter who are talking about not being able to afford living in the city that they study in because some of these cities are very expensive. And then on top of that is, like you're saying, the expectation. Or even if it's not an in-your-face expectation, but just this subtle understanding, which not all of us are clued into, right, as well, but the subtle understanding that when you go to conferences to network, it's also practicing some of that performative ritual stuff that Robert was mentioning, right? For some people, the fly out, your first fly out is also your first practice at doing all these things, which is super nerve wracking because there's so much pressure about the job market. But for other individuals, they've done some of this like whining and dining with academics from other schools at conferences, at receptions. So they have some of that practice. But it isn't always taught to you in graduate school that way of like, oh, you need to go to conferences for these specific subtle reasons of practice. Sometimes I feel like it's drilled in, you have to go to conferences, and then it ends there, like you're just supposed to know. Um, but yeah, I definitely think reimbursement culture is is difficult for graduate students, um, and, and especially graduate students who might not be US citizens. I know there were individuals um, who spoke in my program who would talk about how Reimbursement was difficult depending on their citizenship status, or certain grants were not open to them because of their citizenship status um, or whatever else. So I think that was another layer. I know a lot of graduate students would share one room and just kind of like split the cost of that. Whenever I would go to conferences, I would find the closest grocery store and just like buy a bunch of groceries. And that would be like my meals for the conference because meals are not included, at least for most graduate stipends of reimbursement. Um, so I would just kind of make PB&Js to like bring with me to the conference when I was there. Yeah. How do you kind of navigate, Robert, these constraints and also navigate some of these racial and class tensions um, in the interview itself, right? Knowing that a lot of these cues are subtle, like no one's going to say, well, actually, you know what? Let, let's take that back because I've heard of stories of <laughs> job <are>. interviewers <laughs> saying messed up things and you're just like, tenure and really people. <laughs> yes, totally. <laughs> yeah, there are. Um, I think one of the ways to navigate it is to be very clear and intentional about what kinds of self-representation you really think are truthful to you, regardless of what people say. I, I really want to say this. That, this sounds very cliche, but I think in the job market, when I'm navigating racism right in front of me, and there's a choice between either calling it out in the interview process or not. To make a choice to not calling it, call it out, right? So yes, you get the job. But then what happens after? Because mm. you know, after that job, there's going to be another metric that's going to be held in front of you to not call out things. It's called tenure, you know? And, and you are slowly being conditioned to never call out things because by the time you get tenure, you'll be uncomfortable calling out things already, right? And so that's why when you ask the question of like, oh, how do you navigate that? I think the first question I ask for myself is, can I be comfortable 
to understand that no work environment is worth it for me if it's going to treat me in ways that dehumanizes me. And so if I see a moment of racism, I will try my best, right, to make sure that I'm attuned to like strategy of packaging around my project and making it legible, all those things. But you know, racism, when it happens in front of you, sexism, when it happens in front of you, then you ask yourself, is this a place I want to work? Especially for um, people of color, for women, for queer folks, we're told to accept and be gracious, like, you know, graceful, right? Like we're supposed to be like, are grateful. We're supposed to just say, thank you. Thank you. Like, wow, a job. Thank you. But like, we forget that, you know, um, that's how they stop us from even doing anything when we get to the job, right? When we're there. Trust me, if it's happening in the interview, it'll happen worse when you're there already. What do you think, Marianne? I mean, you know, do you also kind of have to um, think about what works for you and what doesn't work for you? I feel like for a lot of marginalized scholars or people from different backgrounds, like we have to draw that line in the sand, at least in our heads of like, fine, there may be certain comments that I will let pass over me. But then certain things where you're just like, okay, (laughs) this is not what it is. And when when Robert was mentioning, you know, being in your case, Ethel being in Canada, for me, sometimes the way that people when they first find out I'm Filipina, or that I study the Philippines, they just automatically assume I study nurses. (laughs) And then the way that they try to relate to me is they'll say stuff like they're friend's caregiver as a kid or nanny is a Filipina in Canada. And they they offer these stories as a way to try to build camaraderie. Mm. And you're just like internally cringing because you're like, all right, I'm keeping a mental note of where you fit in this um, spectrum of individuals, you know, your, your little list. And it's it's so mind boggling to me, the way in which some individuals have never been checked before. Right. Like mm. the way that some individuals think it's totally okay to make that reference when you meet a Filipino person and just assume that that'll be fine. Um, not stopping to think about the racialized and colonial context for why that those things are in place. Um, and so I think in terms of navigating that, especially on the job market, I think it's a lot of also like managing your facial expressions mm. when people <laughs> make these comments because you're just kind of like, did I really just hear that? And when it's a one-on-one, you're just like, there's no one else in the room to like validate that that was weird. You have to wait until you get home and can tweet about it, right? Um, and, and so just these like difficulties of, of like, how do you grapple with that? And I think Robert is absolutely right. Like, we do have to take that extra consideration of like, when we think about the department being a good quote unquote fit, is the region, like where it is. I personally didn't apply to any red state jobs in any red states because as a visible woman of color um, and just kind of as as an ethnic minority, that was something that I knew I would not be able to navigate. I had a lot of family reasons for why I chose to stay in Southern California. Um, and, And I think similar to a lot of people of color, right? Like my Lola was living with us. I was like helping take care of her. I was working like four part-time jobs on and off while doing the PhD to help pay the bills because my parents weren't working. My parents were a lot older, so they weren't working. Explaining all of that was just a totally different reality. And I remember when I was, I remember concerned about, are you doing stuff you need to do to meet your deadlines? Are you doing the things you need to do? Which I was. 
And I remember at one point I was like, I have to work these jobs to pay bills. And the way they termed it was they were like, you can't afford to be distracted. <gasps> and, and that just like sticks in my head. I would be more distracted if I couldn't pay rent and then couldn't <laughs> live in a house. Like, you know, it didn't have a roof over my head. You know, in the US, it's like the R1 and you want to be at an R1 as opposed to this university. And it's, sometimes it's even like you really like this university in the place you want to live in, but it's not considered prestigious enough in the context of this, right? I, I went on the job market right before even before the 2008 crash. And so then I was offered a job to either live in Detroit, right, at Wayne State Research World University, or two other places, right, one in Portland or one in um, Boston, but the both liberal arts colleges. But right, but in the narrative of the, you know, mm. you know, you take the R1 because that is the jumping job for another R1 to another R1, right? I was so miserable. I've never mm. been as miserable as I was living in Michigan, right? And I, I'm sure a lot of people like it and whatever, but it wasn't me. And I think, you know, having grown up in California and then New York and then moving there as a queer person who's very connected to the Philippines with no other Filipino, like not a lot of Filipinos in the area, it was it was increasingly it was so depressing. What I'm hearing from both of you is that you know we have to kind of really sit with ourselves and think about what matters to us. You know, let's put blinders and not listen to what other people are telling us, but what matters to us and what works the best for us. And I think you know, added on to that institutional dynamic is also trying to explain to your family who may all be centralized in one place. Like you know, here's why I have to apply to mm. all these jobs far away. It's not because I don't like all of you. It's because there are, you know, depending where you live, there might not be jobs mm -hmm. in your specific field hiring at the time. Growing up, my parents were low middle income. We didn't take vacations. So we were always very local. And being in SoCal, we were super fortunate because there's a lot of stuff to do in SoCal. There's a lot of Filipino cities or a lot of like Filipino places. So it was fine. And then graduate school was really the first times that I like, got on a plane to travel somewhere and, and that I was able to like go somewhere else. Like the first time I left the U S like was, I was like three, we went to the Philippines. I don't remember it. And then the first time I went on my own was when I went to Toronto for a conference. And so for me, work was the way that I was traveling. Mm. Um, and, and just kind of the guilt I was feeling that like my parents never got to do this. Mm. And like the kind of the, all of these different feelings about being able to do this for my work in some way. Um, but then also this guilt about how if we have to apply far away from home, like I have friends who are women of color where their parents are like, why can't you just get a job here? And it's like trying to explain to your family, yes, there are colleges here, but they may not be hiring in what I do. Or yes, that, that college is hiring. I know your friend said they are, but it's not what I do. I don't know, Robert, if you've had to encounter that as well. Like so much code switching, explaining, like going from oh, like... Yes. <laughs> For sure. I mean, but even right, like... I mean, with the issues of documentation, you're also like, why can't you do this instead, right? Like, because mm. you would be asked, like, why can't you do another job that has more jobs? Like, why can't you just, right? Um, but also, I think, Ethel, you know, when you said, like, oh, thinking about the core, like, what, how do I approach this entire process? I think they actually, that when you, when you centralize kind of yourself and say, I have to remind myself where I'm from so that I can understand also how far I've gone or like, mm. what are the strategies to keep myself, like, sane and intact in this process, they can actually translate to like small things such as like, you know, um, 
asking when you get your schedule for a job job campus visit or whatever are there breaks in between mm. so you, if you need to like go into a space and remind yourself who is this for right like that could be a strategy like making sure because you know sometimes they pack this in one after the other one after the other and you have like no time to yourself and so even that right because that is actually customary to ask like oh are there going to be breaks in between interviews in between and not because just to get water actually use that time as a way for you to really remind you know because again this process is stressful we can it, it requires multiple translation it requires multiple types of like um you know like kind of uh, negotiation and performance so like how can you maybe have a moment to yourself at every single step of it like where this conversation is going and I think that's one of the you know things that I wanted us to talk about is it seems absurd that we're asking um, and trying to think about ways to kind of regain or re- recuperate our agency in a structurally flawed process right um, but I do I do like what you're saying Robert like there's ways to kind of even with the interview ask um, so some of my disabled colleagues are like look you can't just make it like boom 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 right like it's not that's not that's not going to work for me so there's ways to kind of make these requests uh, to make sure that you can pre- present the best possible uh, job talk or the best possible interview and I was wondering what other what other tips you have uh, to to help job seekers and job candidates seize what little bit of agency they can seize in such a structurally flawed process. Um, and this also pertains to negotiating as well, right? So even as an international student, right, like negotiating um, for a tenure track job, and you know, you're supposed you know, you're going to have to get a work visa. And then from then, you're going to have to, you know, so the condition for tenure actually, usually for a tenure track job is it actually has to lead to a green card, right? Like that's, you can't just be a work permit forever, there's a limit to it. And so even negotiating that, right? Like, so I had to learn quickly um, because you know the first time I did it I think I like didn't do it well and so I had to learn and I ended up not you know getting the job anyways but like I think like even the first step of that is even ranking your, you know when people are rank, like when they have conversations about ranking what you want they'll say ask for an office ask for a computer ask for whatever but for people who like have issues of documentation and residency your first question is can I work here legally so like so then how do you then frame this in a way so one strategy I ended up learning is not just say oh I'd like sponsorship like because that's kind of like it then reads as a, a narrative of gratitude like I would mm. like X and then please give it to me so I can stay you know like no I have to learn like oh as you know my research works on international transnational communities I'm deeply connected to these communities right in my work as well and like whatever any spaces I'm an international scholar and so it's also part of my status actually you know so so in, in order for me to begin that is my first ask like you know is there a way we can make sure that I have permanency in the U.S. Like, but there's a free way of framing it that you didn't frame it as, can you give me this? It's actually like, no, you're hiring me because of, uh, of my links to a community that I study that are actually transnational and broad. Right. And so find that strategy of creating a way to narrativize yourself from not from a position of weakness. Right. But a position of strength that, that, that that's actually the first thing you ask. So that was my first right ask. The first thing. And and some universities, they will try their best to say, oh, you have to pay for your lawyer. Why? Right. So really like kind of trying to find ways to like make sure that those resources are not that the university is not um, basically siphoning particular resources say oh that should be your research fund that should be your whatever we'll use that for your immigration attorney like why you know so really like being clear about um what your priorities are right but also at the same time knowing that you know 
in negotiating, it's kind of um, it's important that that the university knows that these are the things that matter to you too. Like that you're not just gonna say, oh, okay, like thank you, I'm gonna lose X funds for other things because then you basically told the university that, oh yeah, I'm willing to just for my residency not be seen as someone who is going to be a an active member in the university or in my research production. I will be at a disadvantage compared to that citizen that's coming in with a research fund. For sure. And I think um, I'm curious to hear um, what both of you have to say as well. So I heard from a colleague slash friend who I was like, oh, dear. Oh, dear God. Like, you know, I, I really wish you'd talk to me. Um, so she didn't negotiate. <laughs> she didn't know that she could negotiate. None of her mentors in political science, and she went to do her PhD uh, in the U.S., uh, told her that she could negotiate. She signed the first contract and she didn't know that she had the ability to ask for more, right? <laughs> and so, you know, I, I'm wondering, like, you know, were there some tactics and tools that, um, you know, would help would help embolden um, people who, you know, have been indoctrinated into just being grateful? So I sort of did, but did not negotiate. And before mm. you tear your hair out, Ethel. <laughs> no, so no. for me, in my experience, coming from an R1, my whole committee was like, you're going to have, you have to negotiate, you have to have multiple offers to play off of each other. So even, you know, the advice I got to was like, even if you're not going to go there, you should still interview and try to get the offer. And like, just a very like send self-centered kind of thing of rack up as many offers as you can, as if they're just out there freely. Um, and, That's and so I think American, the by entire, the way, FYI. It's it so American. Like it. <laughs> it Canadians, so we, we, don't, we don't learn that. It's very different. I felt weird doing that because again, like if I'm not going to take this job, I'm not going to waste their time, my time. But also the, the job that I really wanted that I ultimately fortunately got was due earlier than all the other jobs. So there was not going to be any like you know, playing off offers. Like I had already said yes to this job before the other schools got back to me about flyouts. And I was like, I'm not going to fly out. I'm sorry. Like, I'm not going to waste your time. The thing, however, that helped me out was, so I am very fortunate that my department is um, a lot younger and a lot more diverse. Mm. And so there were people in that department who very, were very open. The chair, I have a person of color as my chair, which I'm super jazzed about. When it came to the offer, he told me very um, point blank, this is the range of salaries. And he was very open with me. And this is difficult depending on if when you're on the market, depending on how open the chair is. But for me, knowing what the range of salaries was, and then they were also open about, you know, here's what you can expect. And perhaps part of it is because we're a public institution, like our salaries are public knowledge. Um, but knowing how much the individuals hired before me were also given was helpful so that when I was talking to the dean, I knew whether or not that what I was being offered was within the range of what was actually possible versus like what people say is possible. So for me, I was, I tried to, you know, frame it as like, you know, I want to do research with students. Would it be possible to extend blah, blah, blah. And I was told, no, it was not possible. Um, but I wonder how much of that is institutional constraints. But at the very least, I was not as worried about um, being lowballed in terms of the mm. salary because I had very definitive numbers as a metric. So I think for individuals at this stage, when it comes to negotiation, at the very least, um, it's helpful to know what the benchmarks are. So I think being able to cite precedent either in that department or in that institution can be helpful, especially for those of us who feel uncomfortable asking 
right? Mm. Instead of thinking of it. So I really like Robert's advice of coming from a place of strength. For mm. me, I think it's helpful to also come from a place of precedent where, you know, it's, it's not, you, you don't put the focus on yourself as like, well, I think I deserve this much, even though, yes, you do. It's more so like, well, the university has a precedent and I would just, you know, would it be possible to honor that? Yeah, a hundred percent. All of what Marianne said, you know, like exactly baseline is thinking really about what, uh, what other people have, what other people have made in the past, right? Like in, uh, like, you know, in public institutions, this is public knowledge. And so even research, and for me, I had, so in other jobs in career studies, for example, even if you don't have friends or like in, in Asian American studies or something, but you can often, you should spot the person, you know, like when, even in your interviewing, you kind of know the person was an advocate for you. So it's actually okay. Like after the process to email them and say, I'm excited mm. to work with you. Um, you know, I'm, thank you so much. You know, I'm really happy that like, you know, I might join the institution. I was wondering if I could have some time for to have a one-on-one as I just discuss some things right about my offer right and I thought and I think that the real important thing there is and I think this is a key in what I'm also hearing about what Marion was talking about is at the end of the day like we are sometimes so conditioned not to ask because of the, you know, oh, sorry, I swear to speak Tagalog. Like, we're being asked to, like, I'm sorry, I was like, because it's such a comfortable Tagalog space, but our Filipino space. I get it, but let's do it. <laughs> but, like, you know, we're kind of almost conditioned to, like, have the hiya or the shyness mm. to talk about money or to talk about material things as if, like, you know, it's like uncouth to do that. But let me, let me be clear. Like when you're like, when you're sometimes not from like these racialized communities, they ask like that, like as if it's like easy, you know, like, and so I think even being, you know, so in, on the opposite side, right? Like uh, being on a search committee, because there's multiple audiences here, like, yeah, be that person to reach out, mm. right? And say, and not presume, right? That that person will just know or they'll do their own research. It does not hurt you to actually say, this is the range of the salary. I'm within this range. You don't even have to say a number. But that is a big thing to say to someone who's coming in, you know, to, so that they know what. And I, so I've done this, actually, in institutions where I'll say, this is how much I make. I'm not even going to be shy about this. You know, we just met. Use my name. You know, say, like, Robert makes this much. Because they are, like, going to have a hard time. And I think Marion is right. With precedent, they're going to have a hard time. Like, it's going to be, like... Uh, so explain to me why a male in, you know, in this department does not, you know, it does makes more than me. Why? I love everything's being that that's being said here because it shows that solidarity can can occur in multiple ways, right? Like if if your chair um, was you know um, a person of color who was like, look, I'm just going to be honest with you, that's great. If you are on the search committee and you can kind of as a job candidate know which committee members are supportive of you, yeah, reach out and then share freely, right? A lot of these secrets work against people of color anyway, so why not just be transparent? I know that we're so over time. I am so immensely grateful to both of you. Uh, final question. Any last words of, you know, wisdom for job seekers in the academic job market who are just feeling dejected? Because it's a slog. It's a slog. It's a horrible slog. I think what I would centralize on is two things. The first thing, and I recognize that it takes time and doesn't happen overnight, but is to not be afraid to ask mentors about their experiences and to like widen who you consider a mentor. Like for me, there are people on academic Twitter who I have never <laughs> met, but they were very willing to look at my materials or to just tell me, you know, things about the negotiation process or things about like just other policies like spousal hires or maternity leave policies or whatever else that you're not really taught in graduate school. Like it's not in the curriculum. So I think 
not being afraid to ask people questions, especially like Robert is saying, when you can tell that they are an ally of some sort, right? Especially, um, definitely asking people of color their experiences so that you get a sense of like, is this normal? Is this the norm? But also, all of those well-meaning, well-intentioned white individuals who are like, I'm an ally, I'm here for y'all. This is where you can tap them in and be like, mm-hmm. okay, like you're, you've been reading your books. You've been saying that you're here for us. All right. Tell me how much you make. Tell me how I'm supposed yes. to, you know, strategize about answering questions when it comes to avoiding X, Y, Z or how to address the dinner or how am I supposed to do the job market over zoom? Right. Mm-hmm. Like for, I, I think that that's one way is, like Robert was saying is, yeah, we are kind of conditioned sometimes to have to be a little shameful or shy about asking. But think of it in terms of these individuals are proclaiming themselves as allies, which is awesome. This is part of the work that they are committing to doing. And once I started thinking about it that way, I felt a lot less um, shy or reserved about cold emailing people or just like cold tweeting people to be like, hey, you're a dean at whatever and you keep talking about your experience. I want to know, you know, however, whatever it is to to figure this out. So I'd say the first thing is expanding your network of who you consider a mentor. And I think the second thing, which is really hard, is remembering just how much of these institutional things is also based on luck or timing or chance or opportunity or whatever term you want to use, that there are so many qualified individuals for positions. And it's just not just, but it is also a function of timing. Right, of the fact like I was on the job market right before COVID. Um, and that mm. is a timing thing that no one could have predicted, but it plays a big factor in for people who are on the job market right now that there's just no way you could have controlled. You could not have told yourself, get your PhD two years sooner so that you'll be on the market before COVID. Like there's just no way we could have known. Those are all really good bits of advice, and I'm so appreciative of both of you. Um, thank you so much, Tita Marianne, Tito slash Tita Robert, <laughs> for uh, being part of this episode of Academic Antis. Um, really, really grateful for your time. For those of you in the job market right now, remember, you're not alone. We get it. We went through this too. This sucks. No one wants to be doing a dog and pony show where you were heavily scrutinized and you feel like you have to be an academic Beyonce to get the job. And for those of you who are in hiring committees right now, maybe consider ways to make the process more humane. One of the articles that I like, written by a friend, Dr. Alana Katapan, which we will link to in the show notes, discusses the many unfair hurdles presented to job candidates in the job market, such as requiring several sample syllabi. I agree with Alana. One job post that I saw even asks candidates to provide syllabi for classes in the hiring department. Get out of here. Stop that. To that, I add one more thing. Do you need to ask all candidates to supply letters of reference in the initial application? How much weight are you putting on, say, sample student evaluations, especially when knowing that evaluations have racial and gender biases? I will link to a few articles underscoring this point in the show notes. The bottom line is this. There should be ways to make the job market more humane and more attentive to the dynamics wrought by race, class, gender, sexuality, citizenship and immigration status, and disability. Just because something has always been done a certain way doesn't mean you have to keep doing it. And that's Academic Antis for this month. If you enjoy this podcast, help us get the word out. 
One way is to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. If you want to get in touch with us and read all the show notes for this and other episodes, visit academicantis.com. We would love to hear from you. We're also on Twitter at at academicanti. Today's episode of Academic Antis was hosted by me, Dr. Ethel Tungohan, and produced by myself and Wayne Chu. Tune in next time when we talk to more Academic Antis. Until then, take care, be kind to yourself, and don't be an asshole. <laughs>